Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We looked last time at Peter getting arrested. And today we carry on to the, what the apostles did after they got released. So Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were were assembled together was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us the grace this morning to hear your word and to heed your word. Let us, we pray, be strong in you and in the power of your might to be bold in our prayers and to unhesitate unhesitatingly invoke Psalm 2 and pray for your son to reign. Father, help me to speak as I ought to speak regarding the truths in these passage, this passage and help us all to hear them and carry them out in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this text is one of my favorite texts because it specifically relates Psalm 2 to God's plan for history. The apostles released from their hearing before the Sanhedrin go back and immediately burst into corporate prayer. And in that prayer, they pray Psalm 2 and say, Psalm 2 was just fulfilled. The nations raged, the people imagined a vain thing, the kings of the earth gathered together against the Lord and His Christ. And that all happened just seven or eight weeks ago. We saw it with our own eyes right here in Jerusalem. So they pray about that inner structure of history, and then they ask God for boldness to do more of the thing that got them arrested in the first place. So I want to look at this text through the lens specifically of handling persecution. There's low-level persecution like losing a promotion or losing a friendship because of what you believe. There's mid-level persecution like what Peter and John experienced, a night in jail, a hearing, an official warning. Or there's high-level persecution, spending decades in jail even being martyred for your faith. What this passage shows us about how to handle persecution applies to 
any level of persecution, low level, mid level, high level, doesn't matter. These things that the apostles did to get through persecution, what we read about in this section of Acts 4, are useful for getting through persecution of any level at any time. So we'll look at the text that way. They were persecuted for the name of Christ. We will be too. They got through it by doing these things. We will too. We're looking at the apostles as examples of how to handle persecution when you believe in Jesus. The first thing we see, being let go, they went to their own. That's what Luke says. Your translation might have added the word companions or friends or company, their own people, something like that. Luke doesn't have the noun there. He just says their own. That's who they went to. Their own. And I think this is one of the most important points in this whole text. How did they get through persecution? They cultivated deep relationships with the people in their church. Such that they could refer to those people simply as my people. This is my own. They're not just friends. They're not just companions. They're not just associates. They're not just fellow church members. But they identify with these people so deeply that they can just refer to them as ours. We're going to go see our own. That's the first thought in their mind. Okay, I'm free. And we'll talk about this again in the next chapter when they get arrested again and then are out preaching in the temple the next morning. But most of us, after a night in jail and a hearing, our first thought would be, let me find my shower. I feel like I need a nap. You know, I could use a meal. I'm going to go home and recharge, but that is not what the apostles thought. Peter and John's first thought was not get the dirt of jail washed off. It was, I have got to go see my folks, my own. Do we identify with each other that strongly? Are our relationships in this church at that level? Where we can say, they're mine. And just leave it at that. If something important to these people is happening, then it's important to me. There's a big event in their life, I'm all over it. If they're rejoicing, I'm rejoicing. If they're weeping, I'm weeping. If they're in pain, I'm in pain. That's where Peter and John are at. They don't have any other thought in their mind than to get back to their people. And frankly, if that's not where we're at, we're not ready for persecution. If our relationships are shallower than that, if we keep church people at arm's length, oh man, I don't know if I want you to be that close. Then we're not ready, right? You're not going to endure by staying on the fringes of the church. You're not going to be ready to stand up to a night in jail and a hearing before all the grand poobahs. 
by barely getting to know anyone who worships with you. Boy, I don't know if the church has my back. I hardly talk to those people. I know them by sight, I guess. That is what Luke is telling us by just using this word. Being let go, they went to their own. There was no doubt in Peter and John's mind about what their friends would say, how close they were to these people, whether they were wanted, whether they would belong, or whether the others would be like, oh, you went to jail? Ooh, hmm, I'm having second thoughts. I'm not sure I want to be an apostle anymore. There's no question in their mind about whether they're going to be welcome as jailbirds. The longer you stay and talk after church, all things being equal, the more ready you are to handle persecution. The more you know that these people are your people, the closer you are to them, the more you are practicing what Peter and John practiced here. I claim these people as mine. But not only did they go to their own, of course they share what happened and tell what was said to them, and as soon as everyone knows the story, they have one idea. Let's go to prayer. Right? You get together with God's people, you cultivate those deep relationships, and then as soon as you're with God's people, you start to pray. With one accord, they raised their voice to God and said, Lord, you are God. They sought human help, and then they sought divine help. They went to their own. They went from a hostile audience, a hostile hearing with uh, the high priest and his crew, to their own, and then they go to corporate prayer. Right? And if we don't practice corporate prayer now, while the pressure is relatively light, we're not developing the habits that will assist us when we're under greater pressure. If we don't know how to pray with each other, we don't know, in one sense, how to express love for Christ and love for His bride at the same time. That's what corporate prayer is about. I love you, my fellow saints, Therefore, I get together with you and we together approach our Father. Corporate prayer is a family reunion. In prayer, also, we find the greatest unity with each other. As you hear your fellow saints pray, their heart is revealed and you say, we really are on the same page. This person wants what I want. Even if, seeing them in church, I feel like they're on a different page, they have other goals than me. When I hear them pray, I can realize, oh, no, we are on the same page. We love the same Lord. We desire the same thing. This has happened to me more than once. Somebody who I felt had hostile demeanor towards me, outwardly, we would pray together. I would hear in their voice love for Christ and say, Wow, well, who cares whether this person likes me? Obviously, they love Jesus. And they want Him to be glorified, His name magnified, His kingdom come, His will done. Therefore, we're on the same page. 
And what did they pray? They pray together, and what they pray is the Psalms. They know the Psalms, and that's immediately where they go. They said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. They start their prayer with a verse from Psalm 146, which we looked at in our corporate prayer just a few moments ago. The Psalms tell us how to make inspired sense out of suffering. We go spend a night in jail for Jesus and then come back and say, night in jail is not nice. But we read the Psalms and say, oh, lots of people have suffered for Christ before now. Maybe that friend walked away from the friendship because I stood for Jesus. Maybe I lost that opportunity for that job, that promotion, because I stood for Jesus. But, the Psalms tell me how to handle that. Right? Psalm 42 that we sang earlier. As the heart longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for God. I, I feel this sense of spiritual dryness. This Psalm tells me how to deal with that. How to process that. How to understand that. So the apostles turned to this Psalm 146 description of God in trying times. Nearly the same description is in the fourth commandment. The God who made in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. And also in the Levites' prayer in Nehemiah 9. In other words, this sentence about God who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them. This is a common scriptural phrase. And the apostles know it and they go to it. As soon as they experience persecution, where do they go? Well, they start with God as creator. The temple police may say this. The persecutors might say this. We've been forbidden to speak in the name of Jesus, but God made the whole world. God created the temple police. God sustains them. Therefore, their power is limited. God's power is limited is not limited. The fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the people who run the anti-religion bureaucracy, they are all servants of God, created by Him, sustained by Him. North Korea, China, the Equality Act and our own Congress, none of these things can stand against the reality that God is the Creator of heaven, earth, the sea, and all that is in them. He's not going to be successfully resisted, evaded, opposed, or conquered by our foolish and silly strategies and schemes. But they quickly turn from Psalm 2, or Psalm 146, to God, from God as Creator, to Psalm 2 and God as Ruler. God is the one who put his king on the holy hill of Zion. So they talk about, by the mouth of your servant David, you've said, why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed one. So they quote Psalm 2 in their prayer to make sense out of what just happened. Why did we go to jail for healing a lame man and breaching the temple boundaries? Oh, that's why. It's because the elites of the earth, the powers that be, 
plot against the Lord and against His Christ. This is the key to understanding world history. Underneath every historical phenomenon and movement lies this human opposition to submitting to the will of Christ. Psalm 2 is the key to history. This is what's happening. Kings set themselves and take counsel together. Sometimes that takes the form of open rebellion. We won't submit to Christ. Down with God. Down with religion. Right, The Soviet Union. More often though, it's presented positively. God? Christ? We don't need that. We have this other set of gods, this other set of commitments, this other set of projects and plans that if we just do them right, will yield to us the world we want to live in. That's the vain thing that the nations imagine, that satisfaction, fullness, transcendence is possible within the horizon of this world without reference to God and His anointed one. So whether it's open rebellion, as it was at the crucifixion, That's what they say. That's how the apostles interpret this psalm. This psalm is true all the time, but it was fulfilled most clearly at the crucifixion. In other words, persecution is the norm. The psalm is always true. They always rage against Christ and they can't access Christ. As the rulers gather against the Lord and His Christ, they can't strike a blow at God, so they instead strike a blow at the people of God. I can't hurt God in the sky, but I can hurt the Christians who worship down there on Apricot Street. And so I will. So persecution as stick, beat them up. Persecution as carrot, offer them something that they want. Either way, persecution is the norm throughout world history. We, of course, are privileged to live in the era of the carrot. And if the carrot is juicy enough, it's easy to think that there is no persecution. Well, the world just offers something better than the church. So, of course, nobody comes to church. Why would they? Memorial Day weekend at the lake? Church. But the nations rage, the people plot a vain thing. Sometimes the vain thing is open rebellion, as at the crucifixion. Other times the vain thing is simply, well, we'll just sidestep God. We'll bypass that. We can find flourishing without the Almighty. Either way, the nations rage against Christ. So Psalm 2 describes the nations, the people, the kings, and the rulers, four groups. And then the apostles take that and they list the representatives of those four groups. Truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, so they identify Jesus as the Christ of God from Psalm 2. Both Herod, that's a king, and Pontius Pilate, that's a ruler, with the Gentiles, that's the nations, and the people of Israel. This is a revolutionary point. 
When King David writes Psalm 2, presumably he's not thinking that his own people are one of the peoples that's raging against the Lord's anointed. He's thinking, I'm the Lord's anointed, I'm king over Israel, they support me. But the apostles look at the fulfillment of Psalm 2 and they say, yep, kings against Christ, that's Herod. Rulers against Christ, that's Pilate. Nations raging, well, that's the Gentiles, the Roman Empire. And the people imagine a vain thing, oh, that is the people of Israel. Suddenly Israel is lumped in with the Gentiles, the non-believing nations. This is a revolutionary point that the apostles are making. And of course, they're making it about their own people. We are one of the ungodly nations. Paul told Peter, what is that in Galatians 1? We're Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. But those were convertible terms to Jewish people of the apostles' generation. Gentile sinner. You can call him a Gentile, you can call him a sinner. It's the same thing. And the radical idea that there could be such a thing as a Jewish sinner they express it here. Right? Maybe it's a little easier to say that about your own people after the establishment turns on you, puts you in jail, and tells you, stop testifying to what you know to be the case. Just go ahead and lie. That's where the apostles are at. And so they take their own people, the people of Israel, lump them in with the Gentiles. Because they've discovered firsthand. They've tried and they've found stonewalling. The people who crucified Jesus are not interested in repenting, not interested in admitting that they were wrong, not interested in turning around and saying, yes, we crucified him and we're sorry. The German government officially apologized this week to the country of Namibia for slaughtering uh, a few hundred African tribesmen in 1909 part of its colonial adventures in what was then German Southwest Africa. It took 112 years, but they admitted, we were wrong to go down there and shoot a bunch of you. Right? It's been a lot more than 112 years since the leaders of Israel crucified Jesus. And yet there's still no official apology. That's what the apostles are talking about. And of course in their time it had only been six or eight weeks. Not much has changed. The Gentiles rage against Christ and that includes the people of Israel. Psalm 2 is fulfilled. It's come true at the crucifixion. So that's what they pray They say, God, you said this would happen. Kings, rulers, nations, people, they all gathered together, and together, right, Herod, Pilate, Rome, Judea, all four of them were involved 
in the death of Christ. And they're doubling down on it. They've just told us not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They aren't interested in repenting. They're interested in covering up their sin. And yet, the apostles are not discouraged about this. Their prayer is not, So, Lord, break them with the rod of iron. Let the sun be angry and cause them to perish in the way. Right? They don't go to the end of Psalm 2 and pray that. Instead, they just say, this was part of the plan. These four evildoers, the quad squad, they were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined beforehand to be done. Persecution is under God's control. So we get through persecution by going to our own people, by praying together, by knowing the Psalms. And when we know the Psalms, then we'll realize that it's all under God's control. That Psalm 2 had already predicted in detail exactly what was going to happen. How do we endure persecution? Well, we say, this is under God's control. This is part of the plan. It's not a nice part. It's not an easy part. It's not a fun part. But God has not been blindsided by this. Whatever we're going through, God planned it. How? Why? Well, we don't know. But we know that the worst events are from Him for us. The apostles affirm that in their prayer. And how do we reassure ourselves that God's plan is at work? We reassure ourselves of that through prayer. We'll know that we can trust God when we go to Him in prayer and talk to Him about what's happening. When you sit down to pray the Psalms, you'll say, yes, this Psalm describes the moment I'm living in. This Psalm describes my experience, and this Psalm therefore tells me that God knows what would happen. God planned on this happening. And then they pray for God's help. That's how their prayer winds up. Now, Lord, look on their threats. That's the first thing they pray. Just God notice. Now, I think that there is a place in prayer in asking God to do specific things. Sometimes we get down on our knees and we give God this whole plan. 18 steps, do this, and then this, and then this, and then this, and then this. It's usually better, though, to just, like they did, say, God, look. They don't say, God, look on their threats and make them stop threatening. God, look on their threats and make them shape up. Bring them as allies to our side. They don't pray that. They have this confidence that if God knows what's happening, He'll do the right thing. God, just pay attention. That's all I ask. Right? As children, or children, I should say, do you have this confidence in your parents? If you do, I haven't heard it much. That It's not just mommy. It's mommy, stop my little sister, my little brother from, and then a whole demand sheet. But the apostles just say, Lord, look, if your presence is here, that's all I need. 
Because I know you'll do the right thing. That's how convinced they are that God will take care of them. His glance is enough to save. So they ask God to look, and then, unbelievably, they ask Him to help them do more of the thing that got them arrested in the first place. We just got arrested for speaking the word, so help us to speak the word with all boldness. How can they dare to pray that? Or I should ask, how often do we dare to pray that? Right? They weren't taken to jail for healing the lame man. Nobody's going to go to jail for running a community garden. For donating money to your local utility to help pay gas bills for the disadvantaged. Nobody's going to jail for feeding the poor. That's not why they were arrested. They were arrested for preaching Jesus. And so they pray, help us to preach Jesus. Help us to say that he's alive and that he's healing people. That's why they were arrested, for saying that stuff. We are not persecuted today because we don't testify, and we don't testify because we don't want to be persecuted. We attempt to evaluate the situation and say, does this person want to hear it? Well, it doesn't look like it, so I guess I won't say anything. But the apostles show us a different path. They didn't pray that it would get less dangerous to be a Christian. They prayed to be bolder Christians. They didn't pray for the Sanhedrin to have a change of heart. They didn't pray for Caesar to become a Christian and uh, give them a government salary to go around and build churches. They prayed, Lord, help us to be faithful to say what we know. To speak the word with all confidence. Right. If the nations rage against Christ, but they don't know we serve Christ, they won't take out their spleen on us. Pretty straightforward way of thinking. We believe that others are gifted in evangelism, and they ought to be ex- exercising that gift. I, meanwhile, am gifted at keeping my mouth shut and fitting in. It's a good spiritual gift to have. I'm gifted at not being annoying to those who would prefer to throw off the cords of Christ. I'm gifted at looking the other way when somebody doesn't want to kiss the sun. Or rather, I kiss the sun in private where the nations won't see me do it. God forgive us for our cowardice. We need to pray like the apostles did for boldness to say what we know. It's hard to want to be bold because it's easy to see the link between boldness and persecution. It's right here in the text. If they hadn't been preaching Jesus, they never would have gone to jail. And it's there in the next chapter as well. If they hadn't been healing people in the name of Jesus, they wouldn't have gone to jail. We have to pray for the guts to testify. Acts 4 is the Almighty's idea of witness protection. They go to jail. In the next chapter, they get beaten up. They're his witnesses, but they don't get to assume a new identity and go hide the fact that they know anything. But God, this prayer, please God. 
He answers it. First of all, with this physical sign, the place is shaken. People talk about feeling the Spirit come in prayer. The Spirit comes so powerfully that He sends this little mini earthquake. The whole building shakes as if to say, God is here. They had evidence that God was at work. And of course, they go on to do signs and wonders and heal people. More evidence that God heard and answered their prayer. And they all start speaking God's word with boldness, just to one another. Right? It's a good start. God is saying, yes, I am pleased with your request. Here's your answer. You will have boldness to speak, and you will have my presence with you while you do it. And in other words, the point is not to browbeat everybody and say, get out there and evangelize. Lead somebody to the Lord this week. Or, I want you to come back here next Sunday and tell me that you've lost three friends because you've become so annoying testifying about Jesus. Like that, don't become a multi-level marketer for Jesus. That's not what the text is saying. What is it telling us? That the apostles got this boldness not by hanging on for dear life, psyching themselves up. I've got to talk, I've got to talk. I know the cops are going to come and arrest me. No, they started by praying. They got together and prayed and they prayed for boldness. This witness, in other words, was organic. It was natural. It was what they wanted to do. They felt compelled to do it because they had asked God to give them the grace to do it. How do we endure persecution? How do we become people who get persecuted? By doubling down on corporate prayer for guts. That's when we testify. We've talked about the distinction between witness and testimony. We witness what God has done. We have first-hand information so that we're not simply sharing hearsay. Well, I read in a book that Jesus saves. No, I personally know that Jesus saves. I've experienced it. We know it. We're witnesses of it. And therefore, we are empowered by the Spirit to testify, to present our own first-hand knowledge. That's how the apostles witnessed. So, I'm not suggesting that we keep casting pearls before swine. Jesus said not to do that. That means presenting the gospel to people who really don't want to hear it and will turn and attack you. And there are wild boars out there who will chew through you in no time. Don't feed them the pearls of the gospel. But at the same time, What is our prayer? Do we pray for boldness? Or do we pray for the world to become a nicer place? Do we pray, Lord, give me the guts to testify? Or do we pray, Lord, don't let them subpoena me. Please don't. No, 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 no. Don't let me get called into court. I don't want to have to say anything about what I know. I would rather take this knowledge with me to my grave. Right? Which is our prayer? Lord, help me to be bold on the witness stand or Lord, keep me off that witness stand 
forever and ever. Amen. The apostles prayed for boldness to do the thing that got them arrested. That's how we handle persecution. We cultivate deep relationships with one another in the church. We go together in corporate prayer and we ask God for guts. And then when we see His answer, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. Not Then they all felt guilty that they hadn't spoke the Word of God enough, so they got out and did it some more. They weren't motivated by guilt. They were motivated by the Spirit. And if Peter actually says in the next chapter, we are witnesses, chapter 5, verse 32, we are God's witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. How do you have the strength to testify? It's the Spirit's power. It's the same way that we are loving joyful, peaceful, in the same way we bear the fruits of the Spirit, it's by the Spirit's power that we testify to what we know, that Jesus saves, that Jesus is Lord, and that the nations are going to rage against Him, and that they're going to attack those who want to submit to Him. When we pray together, God will give us the boldness to speak the truth in love and see people turn from their wicked ways to kiss the Son, to follow the Lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would help us as a church to build this ecosystem, this self-reinforcing entity that you call a church, a body, where we come together because we love each other and we really want to see each other. And when we're together, we really love you and want to pray to you. And when we pray to you, you answer our prayers and give us more of your Spirit. And your Spirit fills us with more love for one another and more desire to pray and more desire to testify so that there are more of us whom we love even more and we get together again. And Father, give us this holy symbiosis this cycle of spiritual growth where we know that the people of the church are our people and we are committed to one another and we rejoice with one another and weep with one another and pray with one another and have the boldness that comes not just from the presence of your spirit but from knowing that our people are backing us. Lord, thank you for the refuge and joy that we have in the church. Thank you for the closeness that we already enjoy, the love that we already have, the prayer times together that you've already granted us. Lord, give us more, we pray. We ask that you would do signs and wonders and healings. But much more, we pray, for spiritual signs and wonders and healings, for people to be converted left and right as they see the joy and power of the gospel at work in the church in a way that is not available anywhere in any institution or gathering of this world. Father, we pray that the coffee shops and the bars and the tattoo shops and the motorcyclist conventions would be empty because people would find better community, deeper love, greater joy within your church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.